Bienvenidos, and welcome to the Jackman Sports Show, episode 98. I'm your host, Matthew Miranda. Very excited as we approach episode 100, where I will be announcing the new name of the Jacobin Sports Show. So stay tuned a couple more weeks, and you'll be the first on the block to know what's up. Uh, today's episode will feature um, my interview with ESPN senior writer Chris Herring, friend of the pod. He's been on many times before, too. Um, talking about a number of issues with Chris. Uh, we did about a half hour on uh, Usher at the Super Bowl and also uh, a couple NBA questions. Um, talked to Chris about Michigan. Uh, he's a big Michigan fan, I think an alum also. Um, just a little bit to him about Michigan and the with John Harbaugh leaving now to go coach again in the NFL. The question of is it worth it? Like you got the title, you got the the long lost title, um, but you got a lot of other stuff that came with it too. I wanted to know Chris's feelings on that, um, and then learn something about Alfred Hitchcock that I did not know. And I'm glad that I learned. So stay tuned for that. Um, that interview will be in just a little bit after I get to a couple other stories from the world of sports that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, I mentioned last episode wanting to, to learn more, to discuss more about this uh, ESPN, Fox, Warner Brothers, Discovery, sports media, Palooza merger. Um WB includes TNT and TBS, and they would it basically would feature most of the top sports. Um, there's still figures that have to come out and information. Supposedly, there's going to be a CEO of this company that has not been announced yet. Um, early rumors suggest a, a monthly cost of about fifty to sixty dollars. Um, tellingly, this merger does not include any of the traditional networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. And so one thing that it will not include is the NCAA tournaments, the men and the women's final four, all that jazz. But if that's not a sinking ship, I think viewers wise, it's definitely a shrinking one. I don't think that these net, these, these giant ESPN Fox WB, I don't think they care going forward that much about the, the men's and women's, college tournaments especially when you consider that what they're gearing up to go up against is like this is happening around the same time that amazon and apple have both be begun making footprints in the sports media landscape amazon uh, is tell has already done major league baseball and nfl they have nfl exclusive games now um, they're expected to land probably some nba rights and their next media package apple has mls and you know, has an eye on, on more things going forward. That's who ESPN, Fox, TNT are aligning themselves against and the relatively vastly greater wealth that Amazon and Apple have versus even ESPN, Fox, TNT. So um, in, a, in, a, in a war of that magnitude, you know, men's and women's college basketball is not a major consideration versus what they think they can affect by merging. I don't see any way that this is good for viewers. Um, 
unless i mean well i guess it is good for some viewers if you're a viewer who you only really have cable for sports then this is probably good because if it's 50 60 a month you're still getting pretty much all the other major sports so still waiting for more news to come out on this um but it's really hilarious that we're just inexorably moving towards sports media columbusing like the idea of cable and going through all the digital and streaming and all these exciting we're going to change the future and we're basically just reinventing cable um so there's a story another story um tying into tnt actually tnt sports um rylan clark is not a name that i was familiar with before this week um he was on a british reality show i think celebrity something i'm sorry i don't know which one he was on a british reality show um and he's become like a media personality and ryan clark um with tnt sports uh, has done a documentary made a documentary about um homophobia and his experience with it as a a gay man and specifically a gay soccer fan in england um clark had his skull fractured when he was a teenager for being gay um and all of this there's a great piece in the athletic by a writer named roshane thomas um so all of these facts and names i'm about to give to you are from his piece um but clark makes this documentary and talks to former players um talks to uh, players in the men's game players in the women's game explores the like striking difference in basically the absence well i'm not gonna say absence but the striking difference in um tolerance towards any kind of queer lifestyle in men's uh, soccer versus women's interviews uh, rio ferdinand who was kind of infamously um famous for a moment for um using a gay slur like during a game um and being punished for it like not he interviews Ferdinand. Um, he interviews a lot of interesting people. And I think it's a really important story to give some kind of voice and attention to if you have time and interest in it, um, because there really is something enormous and, and there really is something enormous about the fact that there is a, a documentary coming out about this issue when you consider, uh, and Thomas talks about this in the athletic piece, like, like when I grew up, like if you go back to, there was a player named Justin Fashanu um, in England in 1990. He was 29. He was the first British player ever to earn um, a million pounds. He was the first also British. Um, and he was the first, oh, sorry, the first, um, the first black British million dollar, million pound a year player. He later became also the first, um, male footballer to publicly come out as gay um that was at 29 uh he played for norwich city he played for nine and forest big big clubs by 37 he took his own life um clark in his documentary also interviews a former west ham player named thomas hitzelsberger um who came out after he retired in 2014 um just uh, about a year and a half ago a little more than that uh, a player named Jake Daniels was a striker for Blackpool became the first British professional male footballer to come out publicly as gay since Fashanu back in 1990 
um, four months after Daniels came out, a player named Xander Murray um, became the first senior player ever to come out in Scotland. Um, in there's a player named Josh Cavallo uh, in I think Australia uh, who came out publicly also in well, earlier, but he's come out. Um, Jakub Yangto, who's a midfielder um, for the Czech Republic, and Cagliari um, is another professional footballer who's come out. This is an enormous like thing, um, story, reality, uh, whatever positive word you want to use for it. Um, especially for anyone who grew up being an enormous fan of sports and also um, someone whose states of sex and gender were always fluid at a time and in a world where being open with such truth like could get you killed. Um, it means a lot now, not at all suggesting that, hey, it's all good, but it means a lot that you can have a documentary made about this issue. You can have now this... You know, the growing number of, hey, this person, there's more and more coming out. Um, it's really nice. It's really, really nice. I'm not very articulate about it, but it's really, really nice. Um, all of which served also to make me want to ask you to take a moment to recognize a man named Glenn Burke. If you're not familiar with Glenn Burke, Glenn Burke, oddly famous for being credited along with Dusty Baker, for inventing the high five. This is a literal truth. This is not a joke. Um, Glenn Burke was a Dodger when Dusty Baker was. Uh, Dusty Baker hit a home run in a game as he was coming around. Glenn Burke ran up to Baker and had his his hand like up in the air, kind of the celebratory gesture. And Baker didn't really know what to do, so he just like slapped his hand, and that became the high five. Uh, Glenn Burke, famous for that. Glenn Burke also... Famous for becoming the first, he was the first Major League Baseball player who ever came out as gay um, after he retired. And But Burke was known to be gay when he played, which was unheard of and not something that was publicized outside of the clubhouse, um, but it was known. Um, so just when you're thinking, you know, I don't know. I don't know when the thought would come to you, but if you've never heard of Glenn Burke, Glenn Burke's one of those people who did some things and went through some things that contributed to a better world for other people that have come after him. And Glenn Burke should be remembered as such. Final sad note before the Herring interview. Um, the world lost Kelvin Kipton this week. Kelvin Kipton, we spoke about him once a little a while ago. Um, he's a Kenyan marathon runner. He just died in a, a car accident in Kenya. He was very young. He's 24. Um, Kipton is the only man to ever run a marathon in under two hours and one minute. And I, I remarked upon this in a prior episode, but like literally go to your gym, go to the treadmill, set it to 13 and see how long you can go. That's what this man did for slightly more than two hours. I don't have the endurance to pod for two hours. I cannot imagine a human being running that fast, probably now at my age at all. And certainly not for that amount of time. Um, an astonishing athletic feat and a very sad um, story to a young man. So, Kelvin Kipton, hope you are at peace wherever you are. That is going to be it for this portion of the episode, but stay tuned because, as I said, following will be the interview with Chris Herring. If you would like to follow Chris on Twitter, 
herring underscore NBA. Um, if you're looking for a gift for someone or maybe just some entry-level self-care, consider a subscription to the Jacobin Sports Show. I don't send you junk mail. And who knows? Maybe you subscribe. One day you have the show on in the background while a friend stops by. Maybe that friend falls in love with the sound of my voice. And we meet one day and fall in love. And it's just a revolutionary act in these late stage days of dehumanization. So, And it all started with your subscription to the Jacobin Sports Show. So if you're interested, we're on Patreon. Uh, upcoming now, Chris Herring interview. Thank you, comrades. Peace. Today's guest is making, I am pretty positive, third appearance on the Jacobin Sports Show, which makes him the Michael Jordan of the Jacobin Sports Show. This would be the <laughs> Wizards phase. Enjoy it. It's a thing of beauty. He is also senior writer at ESPN and the Times best-selling author, which is, is such a nice thing to say, of Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks, a book that I have read and loved very dearly. Welcome back to the Jackman Sports Show. Chris Herring. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Matthew. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very grateful to have you on here. Always excited when we get to talk about uh, NBA stuff. But I want to open and close by asking you non-NBA stuff, Chris Herring. And my first question, sure. I don't know if there's any legality to this, and I don't know how close you even follow the NFL, but is it possible that Usher could now begin a new residency as the halftime show for every Super Bowl that comes <laughs> I am not someone drawn to every single halftime show, but I wasn't missing this one, and I am glad that I did not miss it. Um, your take on the Super Bowl entertainment this time around. I it, Hey, if they come up with that idea or if they implement that idea, it would just give him more opportunity to dig into the songs that he didn't get to do in the mm -hmm. Super Bowl. I, I think you and I probably feel the same way about it. But I also think that, you know, we – I think, first of all, I think Usher was a good pick. I, I tweeted something during his performance like, how did it take this long for him to actually do a Super Bowl in the first place, mm -hmm. considering that this is someone that has performed with Michael Jackson, that, you know, has done duets with Alicia Keys and – any number of people, you know, throughout the industry. But I also think that the Super Bowl is one of those things where it is so based on kind of like what generation did this person stem from and does he connect with best? And so I am firmly part of that generation. So, and I like R&B music. So for me, of course, I loved the performance. If anything, I felt like it should have been another five, 10 minutes long and I would have, Mm -hmm. thought it was perfect that that was my only complaint about it um but also i imagine people that are hardcore nickelback fans probably felt the same way about that whereas the rest of us make jokes about it um mm -hmm. so i wonder if it's just one of those things that we have such strong echo chambers within our own circles that most of the people that i follow and respect and and connect with loved the performance uh, th I think there were numbers to suggest that this was really successful. I think it was the most watched halftime performance, but also it was the most watched Super Bowl. So I don't know how to to judge that. Other people would, but um, I, I think more often than not, people really liked the performance. And I think that for that reason, it's kind of hard to find people that don't like Usher at all or just really hate his music. So I think for that reason, he was a really good pick. It's an interesting collision too, like you say, because as like as to I have this in the supermarket now where I go to the supermarket and they're playing like Radiohead. And I'm like, wow, the supermarket's really cool. Oh, no, I'm just old. And now I'm the person that's marketing <laughs> for this. 
I wonder, you know, with the Super Bowl as we go on, in you know, a lot of people write about it kind of diminishing monoculture, like in America, like musically, media-wise. I wonder 10, 15 years from now, what Super Bowl halftimes might look for if you don't have an artist that kind of joins a, a generation together the way that the older, you know, before media fragmented so much. I wonder in 10 or 15 years, like if you'll still get single artists or if they'll have to fragment just because mm. that's the audience. I mean, it's it's a good question. I you know, I tend to think that there'll always be some people that cross over and mm -hmm. um I mean, hey, I don't think the Super Bowl is also opposed to bringing just super superstars back if they're willing to perform again, which we're seeing now that uh mm -hmm. you know, they aren't paid to yeah, perform. I just learned that. I, yeah, a few years ago, I can't remember who it was that performed. Maybe it was Rihanna where people were like, "Man, they must be giving her the bag." And it's like actually they don't pay mm -hmm. them because it's just viewed as something where it's such a honor that and such a good plug for them yeah that it kind of pays for itself from that standpoint that was what i thought was brilliant about beyonce's ad during the super bowl of <laughs> doing the verizon ad it being a minute long which that you know a minute long ad during the super bowl is already expensive but also similar to what people assumed about rihanna with regards to like oh wow rihanna rarely does anything these days tied to this so if she's doing it they must be really paying her that's how beyonce is with advertisements so I, yep. I think it was that my fiance told me it was something like 37 million was the total payout for verizon in terms of you know however many millions it was to get beyonce for a commercial and then mm -hmm. how much they had to pay for the spot itself um you know but they'll always be able to get someone i think who has massive stature that even if they're from previous eras if it's a prince if it's a you know getting beyonce to come back or mm -hmm. something if they've got something to plug then you can make the argument that it's a great advertisement for them but taylor swift obviously you know is is firmly in the nfl's wheelhouse now even if she wasn't before um so we'll, mm -hmm. we'll see i'll be curious to see who they pick 15 20 years from now as well though based on what you're saying mm -hmm. so i'm going to downshift now to the nba a couple questions um <laughs> okay I'm curious about a question around Leon Rose um, and the Knicks. The Knicks have been a big story. They're they're enjoying their kind of salad, their brightest days in a long time. Um, yeah. And Leon Rose has has really done an excellent job since taking over this team of you know, acquiring extra draft picks, not pissing them away in trades. The cap situation is pretty fluid. They don't have bad contracts. They've got a nice diversity of contracts to make a trade. And I think the consensus was that Leon Rose was brought in to take over the Knicks because. He's a former, he wasn't brought in because of his excellent work as a GM before. He had never done it before. He was brought in because he was a highly successful player agent. He's worked with the stars of stars and the Knicks historically, they want the star of stars. Are you surprised at all? And, and to be fair, Leon Rose is in this conversation kind of a, a euphemism for Leon Rose and the front office. It's not just Leon Rose, it's Walt Perrin, it's Quencho, B. Broy, Aller. I can't remember his last name now. Sorry. Bryce Aller, maybe. Sorry. Uh, yeah, something like that. There's a whole front office, obviously. But the point is, they've succeeded wildly. Short term, and I think look good long term, despite the fact that Leon Rose has not, so far, done the thing. The only nine-figure deals he's handed out were the extension to Randall off of the first deal, which was not a max, and the deal for Brunson, which was nowhere near a max. I don't know your familiarity with Leon Rose, like from covering the league before. And, you know, some former agents, Palinka won a title in LA. You can 
argue how much you think LeBron deserves most of that, but are you surprised at all that Leon Rose has had this amount of success without kind of busting out what his big move seemingly was going to be, which is I've got connections. I'm going to bring in the star. And he hasn't done that, but he hasn't really so far had to either. Are you surprised by how the Leon, not, not that he's had success maybe, but that it's happened this way? Uh, sure. A little bit. I mean, I think that the one thing that you can't discount in all this is one, they, they've made fantastic moves. Uh, and I think the biggest one that they made clearly was Brunson who kind of changed the whole scope of all of this, of when you win a move that decisively um, at that level, meaning your best player, your second best player just outperforms what they're paid to that extent. It, it puts you in a place where you have an opportunity to accomplish a lot more than what people would have assumed. And so that there's that part. And I think that that's probably at least within the last year, the biggest development. Um, yeah. And you could see it very early on that like, okay, this is a guy that it's not, he's being paid as an average starting point guard, or at least when he got the deal, I don't even know how much better the deal looks now, but mm. at that time, and I, I tweeted about this somewhat recently and a lot of people were like, Oh, yeah, of course you say that now. You're jumping on the bandwagon. I'm like, no, I I was never complaining about his deal. Uh, you will not find anything of me writing and being critical of what they paid him. I, I To the contrary, I think I actually wrote, people are complaining. There are some people complaining. I would say like a loud minority, or, you know, like a vocal minority yeah. that are saying that this is a too much money to kind of throw at a player that hasn't proven it. But that's exactly the sort of player that you're supposed to take those gambles on. It's mm -hmm. what sort of work ethic do they have? What's their injury history? Have you seen enough when they were playing without another superstar on the court like Luca? Um, mm -hmm. This is essentially kind of like the James Harden gamble on a smaller scale. Of Houston gave James Harden a ton of money once they made the trade for him or mm -hmm. said that they would. And they were going off of a lot of numbers that suggested that even when he's not with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, this guy can really hold his own. He draws fouls. He can shoot, you know, all these different things. That's the sort of stuff you're supposed to be going off of. So they nailed that and oh. nailed it to an extent that they would probably be a borderline playoff team, even if Brunson was playing by himself without a Randall or something like that. That's a huge home run. Mm -hmm. Nobody can debate that. I don't think anyone would waste their time trying to dispute that. I think the other massive part of what they've done, though, is they've set a culture, and that was done through Tom Thibodeau. And, you know, and I'll, I'll go into this, just like I was saying, there were detractors of, for Jalen Brunson's contract. There were a lot of people saying Thibodeau should be fired. And they I imagine are. now, in, in light of the injuries that they're, you know, that they've sustained and, you know, the minutes that some of those guys have played, there are still people that kind of feel like Thibodeau hasn't learned his lesson from the standpoint of keep these guys healthy, mm -hmm. adjust to today's modern NBA in terms of minutes and and taking time off and not playing your guys, continuing to play your guys when you're down by 14 points with four minutes to go mm -hmm. at home. Uh, so that there will always be some of that. But let's be honest here. Tom Thibodeau set a culture. We knew what the culture would be when he got here, at least to what he would want to emphasize about it. He would want them to play defense aggressively. He would want them to be a tough-minded team. He would want them to rebound. And this team does that to the extent that we're watching third and fourth string centers out-rebound healthy teams by 20 and 30 rebounds. Mm -hmm. uh, we're watching Isaiah Hartenstein make a very good case, a compelling case for 
even when Mitchell Robinson is back, maybe I should have this job, um, you know, because of the fit that he has with the rest of the group. Um, we're watching Preston Sertua, you know, put in, sure. I think, somewhat of a bit of like one of the most improved players in the league. Um, and and by the way, I don't think that that's a fit that most people would have argued was going to happen under Tom Thibodeau. But I actually feel like I remember being on Media Row and kind of saying that I thought he was an intriguing piece and a lot of the immediate people around me are like, you know, he's not a good player. Like he's, you know, like he's a throw in and he probably was in that trade, but you know, he was coming from an organization that was kind of more or less kind of excavating and just kind of seeing what they had, you know, and, and what is going to fall through and what is going to stay and what is going to stick. And they're looking for young talent to build around. And they decided that they could move on from him. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was inconsistent. And so inconsistency is not normally something that appeals to Tom Thibodeau. So the fact that it's worked and that it's worked to this extent, um, I think the thing that works about Precious Issue is that he plays really hard. He might make mistakes, but he he plays really hard. And then even, you know, one of the last media sessions I went to, one of the last Knicks games I went to, it was the first game for Boyan and Alec Burks. And Tom Thibodeau said, look, you're not going to know the defense inside and out. But to some extent, you just have to play hard and, you know, like let the effort take care of itself. You you, you give the effort and then you let the rest of the stuff take care of itself because you'll get more uh, cohesion when you start playing with these guys together more. And so that's the one area where you could really go wrong is if you're not playing hard enough um, and you're not willing to try to defend. And uh, Tom Thibodeau has instilled that culture for years now. Um you know, even the guys that you would look at and think, oh, they might not be very good defenders. Jalen Brunson's leading the league and charges drawn. You know, uh, guys are sticking their noses in there, defending aggressively and, um, you know, and playing maybe, again, more minutes than they should. But that's all stuff that you can count on with a yeah. Tom Thibodeau team. So I think that that part of it is huge. And whether you like them or not, not every coach is like that. Not every coach is going to demand that. Um and it might have its drawbacks at times. It might have its drawbacks during the playoffs, but it's something that you obviously couldn't take for granted with Knicks teams prior. And I think that that's a massive shift in the culture. And that's someone that Leon Rose decided he wanted to coach the team and continue to coach the team. So I think you have to tie that in with, with Leon. And I think sometimes people, I think there's an instinct probably from the old NBA to, to still think of coaches as these very like that the coaches are this dominating like almost like they're the active participant and the players are passive and what happens tom thibodeau does play everyone probably too much but when you see dante divincenzo like obviously pull a hamstring and he's not looking to come out of the game like he's insisting on like you bring these guys together like you're saying it's not it is a culture that you've built and you've you've created and you've sustained it and now you have a cast of guys you may have to protect them from themselves but they want to be out there even when they're not 100 percent. that's again i think a testament to rose and to thibodeau and everything that you're you're talking about um chris i know that you are a professor as am i so let's do a quick media liter- literacy exercise because media literacy okay. is important so the story yeah. breaks that after the trade deadline apparently and i think this is pretty substantiated that golden state and the lakers had discussions I read, I think, in The Athletic, maybe up to an ownership level even, about a possible LeBron to Golden State thing. I don't know if that's substantiated at that level, but there was obviously talk. My question, Yeah, ESPN is, reported it. It was uh, Woj okay. and Ramona Shelburne, I think. Mm-hmm. Ah, thank you. Okay. Yeah. 
that story doesn't seem to me like something that Golden State would want to leak. It doesn't seem to me like something the Lakers would want to leak. So is our conclusion that LeBron leaked this because not sorry, is our inference that LeBron leaked this because maybe when the year is up, he's like starting to grease the wheels for going? Because I cannot see an advantage for Golden State or LA leaking this story when they still have two months to go. But maybe but there may be something I'm not thinking there. What do you think? When you hear this news come out, do you have an assumption about that must have come from here or it definitely didn't come from there? Um, it's a good question. I, I can also be really honest in saying I, I haven't. I mean, I've broken stories before, but not ever anything even approaching that level. Um, you know, if and when I have, it's been more player focused and it's been smaller than that or it's been I'm hearing this. Uh the only thing that I can think of without wanting to speculate way too much mm-hmm. is that the tone of the story, which I thought was interesting and, and highly unusual, was kind of like, yo, get a load of this guy. Like, he's really trying to knock the door on the idea of can we can we make this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think the way it was phrased specifically was Golden State was curious, like, because LeBron is kind of acting passive-aggressively, Shocking it, in and of itself. Right. Like, does he want out? And if he does, like, can we have a conversation? Which I think is a little, it's not to say that it, you know, it was ownership. So it is an unusual call. But I also think the ownership part of it suggests, like, look, we're not trying to be ridiculous here in our ask. We're just trying to, like, let's just get right to it. Because if mm-hmm. it is the case, then we'd be interested. Um, but there were other parts of the story that, you know, the Warriors were not the only ones that called about that and and so the part that i was mm. referencing before was kind of the daryl Morey part which is that that leaked too not to the point where a story was written about it but it was you know gm to gm essentially um and it was kind of like get a load of this guy like trying to ask if <laughs> lebron's available like is joel Embiid available and like so that. from that standpoint it it was weird but i you know i i don't know the only speculation that I would even have, and again, like I'm not a reporter at that level. I don't do this, so I don't know. Um, but if the same way that that was kind of phrased in the story is kind of like the way that we tell our friends something when someone's really, we see someone really wilding, like, yo, look at what this person just did. <laughs> it might've leaked that way of like a second or third hand sort of thing because okay. it was shared that that happened. But again, that was with maybe the Sixers asking for LeBron as yeah. opposed to the the worst thing. I have no clue, but I was slightly curious about the same thing. It's just interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like who can blame a team that desperately wants to improve? I mean, look, LeBron is not peak LeBron anymore. We all know that. He's still playing well. Um, who would blame anybody for inquiring about a top 10, at worst, top 15 player, even at this stage in his career, yeah. if we actually – think that he might be so frustrated that he would welcome getting out. Uh, it, if, if not asking about that is simply because like, we just have so much reverence and respect for the guy, you're not fully doing your job. So I, I was surprised by it, but I, I also think it was smart to at least ask the question. Like the Warriors probably are not accomplishing a whole hell of a lot with this roster. I know they've been playing better lately, but um, you know, they could use, they could use um, more skill, more talent. Um, more experience you know as steve Kerr was not willing to play kaminga until very very recently and he's been playing well but uh yep it was a little surprising i'll, I'll give you that for sure i think we all were a little bit surprised 
in the same way that you know Chris Haynes had that report several years ago that uh, the Warriors were having their internal conversations about how they could bring LeBron on through free agency or a sign and trade or whatever right. when they already had all those guys it might have even been when they had Durant too and I was like okay mm -hmm. uh, but you never know why those things leak and and how they leak and what people are thinking or you know or what have you I at least mm -hmm. I don't because I've, I've never been a reporter that's really you know called myself like a newsbreaker so it's very interesting just just a little thing to chew on a bit um last few minutes left let me turn away from basketball and try to discover in about five minutes, some of Chris Herring's other sports aff affinities. I assume that you are a University of Michigan fan. I am curious, Chris Herring, not having any idea what it's like to be a Michigan fan or what it's like to follow a team with that history, long-term and recent, was Jim Harbaugh worth it? Was everything that came, and I don't know what your feeling is about what everything that came, but I, mm -hmm. from a distance, you see scandal, this story, that story. This sure. reputation, he wins the title. I remember as a kid, like Michigan, like Desmond Howard, like waiting, and they have mm -hmm. won a title. They win a title. Is it a sense of like it's worth it because we brought him in to do this and he did it? Or I've read that some people feel like Michigan is supposed to be different. Like Michigan is, Michigan yeah. is a higher. So to you, just you, forgetting everyone else, sure, you've seen the whole experience. He's come, he's gone. Is it worth it? Yes. And yeah. I think I can answer that unequivocally, but I will say that I have had that question. I I've never once suggested that Harbaugh should be fired. Uh, even, you know, the COVID season was the one where a lot of fans were like, get rid of this guy. And they, they were two and four that year. It was a weird year because Michigan and a lot of other teams had people opt out. Uh, mm -hmm. The big 10 was kind of the last conference to say, we're going to have a season this year. So Michigan was rusty and not, not ready, really. And and they had a couple guys, including, I think, Nico Collins, who's been a pretty good NFL player, just opt out. Um, what I think, though, is that my back then, when when people were arguing he should be fired, he had you know winless record against Ohio State at the time. And uh, I think it only won one game against Michigan State at the time as well. Hmm. The argument that I had and that I used for a lot of things is, okay, it was the coup of a century for Michigan in college football to convince Jim Harbaugh to take the job. He had had a really successful run by almost any yeah. meaningful scale at the NFL level. He'd been a great coach at the college level. He had ties to Michigan. He played for Bo Beckler. So it was a massive coup to get similar to what we've seen now in terms of Michigan being able to convince people to come down from the NFL level to coach yeah. on their defensive side or what have you as a coordinator it's a really big coup to get someone of Harbaugh's stature to coach a team that has been kind of lost. It had been lost for the better part of a decade since mm -hmm. Lloyd Carr had retired. Um, so I remember being really excited about that. It was a huge story, one of the biggest stories in sports. Harbaugh, every time he did something, was one of the biggest stories in sports. So my question was always, who are you going to replace him with? Like Michigan was still winning nine games a year, sometimes mm -hmm. 10 games a year. When Harbaugh was there, he had one really bad season. He had another season where it was like, okay, this is a little disappointing. But he still was averaging nine, nine and a half wins a year. And mm -hmm. so it was like, if you can just figure out how to beat Ohio State, there's no problem here. And that's essentially what flipped in the last three years. Now, the cheating stuff does not make me feel good or anybody else feel good. I'll also say unequivocally, it's very clear that Michigan cheated. We can go into the degrees of how much they did or mm -hmm. whether everybody else does a degree of that. Sure. It was very clear that Michigan was doing it on a level that was unusual 
uh, even within that scope. And so we can, I think I can own that uh, and say, I don't like it. And that I like to hold Michigan to a higher standard. That's the way they've always carried themselves. I also think it's worth thinking about the fact of like, you know, we're in a new day and age. These guys are being paid. And part of what Michigan probably would have taken pride in before is like Michigan, you know, Motion Buckler once said uh, with a, a basketball coach they had that was taking a job right before the NCAA tournament started. Um, that I think it was Bill Frieder was coaching Michigan and he was, you know, he took, he wanted to take a job at Arizona state. And so at that point, Michigan let him go. They did not let him coach the tournament. He said, a Michigan man is going to coach Michigan. Um, and that was how Steve Fisher ended up getting the job. They won the title that year. Uh, and Bo also said, those who stay will become champions at Michigan. Um, so they took a pride in kind of like, you want to be here. It's not because of money. It's not because of this. It's just the the tradition, the pride, the, you know, of being at Michigan, of being a Michigan man. Uh, that day and era doesn't exist anymore. Like, if you can't come up with NIL money, like, you're going to lose out on most of these recruits. Uh, they lost out on Lloyd Carr's grandson. He went to Notre Dame. So oh my God. in light of all wow. that, you know, and he's like a high, he's like a blue chipper. He's like Notre Dame's best recruit. That's fine. But I, I say all that to say this, that Michigan can't – you can't rest on those laurels, even if you've won more games all time than any other college program. Things are going to change, and teams and programs are going to cheat and look for an edge. And, you know, Michigan's no different. They're part of the machine. They are the winningest program in that machine. And they were under the pressure of, like, yo, we might all lose our jobs if we don't beat Ohio State. I think whatever. Like, they they did something. I'm happy that they were caught mid-season so that they could then kind of run the table once it was exposed that that was what they were doing because at that point everybody's changed their signs they were probably just legitimately the best team this year i'm mm -hmm. happy that they could show that instead of it being coming out later that they cheated and then having to potentially have like a fab five situation where you're pulling down banners and stuff like that but uh mm -hmm. i think it was worth it just because i know how hard it is to win a title um it has been painful to watch every not meaningful coach, but most of the meaningful coaches, all of the coaches on the defensive side, leave the program for Harbaugh to leave in the fashion he did for Harbaugh to have the NFL flirtations every offseason and see Michigan not get a recruiting boost out of how well they played. But mm -hmm. um, but they won the title. This was a, an extremely enjoyable season. I think the players on the team seemed like they were good guys, starting with Blake Corum. J.J. McCarthy seems like a wonderful person without knowing them at all. But, but you know, mm -hmm. I, I was pretty excited. And no, I went to the Rose Bowl and the national title game, and th those are movies nice. I'll hold on to for a long time. Nice, nice. I know you didn't long have a great answer. season this year, but even as someone who doesn't follow Michigan or really college football, I am excited for Wink Martindale just to have a shot to. Yeah, to, uh, he's he's, some, he's pretty. I know that the Giants didn't have a great year, and there was tension with him and Dayball, but like before all that started, Wink Martindale was like pretty like loved in New York already, just for what he had done with that defense. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I I don't know uh, much about him, but I know that he had you know that he essentially installed the system that then uh, that mentor Jesse Mentor and and even uh, Mike McDonald had kind of utilized before. Um, I'm excited to see what comes of it. I'm scared that they've lost so many people, including the strength and conditioning coach, who seemed like it's kind of like world renowned, and and mm. you know they they're losing a lot. Uh, you know, but I, I'm happy that they're getting someone that at least they're not starting completely from scratch and that 
you know, hopefully there's some magic left in that bottle. But I'm I'm thinking that this is going to be a down year, certainly from 15 and 0. But even you know, judging by Harbaugh's tenure, that if they win seven, eight games next year, seven might be a disappointment, but eight, we don't know who their quarterback is going to be. We don't know hmm. how their coaches are going to work with these guys. We don't know if they're going to get injured. They've got a hard schedule. They play USC, Washington, Ohio State. Um, they've got Texas to to not open the season, but I think the second game of the season. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. you know, all the complaints that they've had over the last couple of years about their schedule being soft. This is not going to be an example of that. <laughs> um, but but we'll see. Give us a lot of time, Chris Heron. I'm going to give you just a couple last one-sentence lightning round answers. and then Okay. You're free to go. Do you have a favorite okay. NFL team? I don't. Do I uh. I don't. I, I no. don't. I don't watch the NFL. Is I haven't watched the NFL since Kaepernick. Uh, oh, okay. No, I think it's just a. It's a, to me. It's. I mean, I'm not gonna put any sort of pressure or hate on anybody. I think it's just kind of like a. I believe that there are issues in this country, and I understand where Colin Kaepernick is coming from. Uh, okay. Issue, you know, and. Uh, so ever since it was to me pretty clear that he'd been blackballed, I have not made a point yeah. to watch the NFL. I I made one exception this past weekend. We obviously started by talking about the um, Usher halftime performance. My so I've been engaged for the last year. Um, mm. My father in law, my father in law is not really an English speaker. He can speak a little bit, um, mm. but I try to connect with him as much as I can, even without really being able to speak the same language all that well. Mm. Um, he recently had a stroke, you know, back in September. And so was there with him as he was recovering and, and there with him in the hospital. So still trying to deepen that connection. Uh, and thank mm -hmm. God he's doing much better and he's back at work and he's, you know, he's fully capable of doing everything. But he invited me, he was kind enough to invite me to his friend's Super Bowl party. I went with him. Uh, was not going to say no over the fact that I don't watch the NFL. But that is the one game that I've kind of taken in um, and made a point to take in since the Kaepernick stuff happened. I had a Super Bowl party myself the year before Kaepernick and then have gone all those years without watching the NFL. Uh, I've never really had it. The closest I ever came to rooting for a team back in the day um, was the Chiefs when they had like Joe Montana. I had a video ah. game that uh, was I think was called Joe Montana Football on yes. Sega. Yes, and, yes, yes. Uh, so I always kind of, my, you know, the same, it would be like if someone had was a Michael Jordan fan or like a Wizards fan because of Michael Jordan, uh, where it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I was not aware of Joe Montana's 49ers time, uh, yeah. but uh, I was a Chiefs fan because that video game kind of, you know, default was the Chiefs and Marcus Allen. And so I, I liked them, uh, but I, I kind of fell out of love with the NFL. I covered it for one year. And then like I, even before the Kaepernick stuff, there's other issues I have with the NFL outside of the Kaepernick stuff. So I don't yeah. have a team that I root for. I also was a kid that grew up kind of in church on Sunday. So I never connected with it in the same way. College football is li literally my favorite sport more so than the NBA. Okay. Um, okay. Wow. More, like far more than the NBA. I think because Michigan, Michigan is probably the only team I go out of my way. Like I'll go to a game, I'll root for them. I've gone yeah. to some Chicago Sky games for the WNBA, yeah, um, and and watched their playoff run in person. But uh, when they won the title, but really, like if I'm being honest with myself, even the White Sox, who I grew up with as yeah. a Frank Thomas fan, I, I can do without just about everybody. Michigan football is the only thing I'm a diehard fan of, and so that's why to your question of like, was it worth it? 
my parents went to Michigan, graduated from Michigan, met at Michigan, um, which is why I always wanted to go there. And um, mm-hmm. so I, yeah, I don't have a team. I was never a Bears fan. And I feel like the the pain that they give their fans every year <laughs> makes it a worthwhile decision to have never really signed on to that. That was a lucky rig for you. Last question. Uh, you recently posted a list of the 10 movies that you have seen the most. And there was yes. only one. I had a couple crossovers with you. Malcolm X is probably on my list too. Vertigo may be there. You had one movie that I've never heard of. So I just wanted to ask you. Um, sure. You had a movie listed called Rope. Yeah. What is Rope? I've never heard of it. Is it an older sure. movie? Is it a newer movie? Rope, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Rope is from like 1958. It's okay. old. Uh, it is a Hitchcock film. Oh, uh, wow. Jimmy Stewart is in it. And wow. I'm nearly certain it's based on it's it's I don't know if it's loosely based, but it's it's based on a true story. Um, and it is basically about kind of like a murder for pleasure sort of thing. And uh-huh. I know that phrase probably makes no sense, but like kind of like a, I'm so smart, I can get away with this sort of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. and I can do it and no one will find out. And so I think I, it was again, based on a true story. And it was this pair of guys that killed a classmate or a friend of theirs right before a big dinner party they were hosting. And instead of trying to find a way to kind of get rid of the body, they were like, they, they tied a rope around the guy's neck, choked him out, killed him. And then we're like, one of the guys was like eager to get rid of the body. The other one was like, no, no, no. Like we got this dinner party. Let, let's hide the body here. And like, no one will ever know. We'll even invite the guy's partner to the party and no what? one will ever know. And so what I think is so brilliant about the movie, which I'm giving it all away, but it's also the the killing of this guy happens within the first two minutes of the film. It's not okay. like, yeah, it's not some sort of drama from that standpoint. It's not a spoiler. This is literally what the movie's about. Um, it, the whole movie takes place in one room. Mm, and I, like I think that it's just really to watch a movie that goes on for 85, 90 minutes and takes place all in the same room, but keeps you kind of on the edge of your seat of like, how are they going to pull this off is fascinating on mm-hmm. so many different levels. And um, I found myself watching it so many times. Uh, like I've, I've read some things about Jimmy Stewart that suggests he's not a great person. He's a damn good actor. Like <laughs> in the same way that Hitchcock was, by the way, yes. not acting, but like as a director, like Hitchcock sounded like a, a horrible person. But yeah, um, I can't deny that that film just like keeps you spellbound. And it's uh, I think that the premise of I'm a big person from the standpoint of like what is the premise? And you know, I I feel like with me as a writer, like I try to dig into weird unusual premises so i i'm kind of that appeals to me from a movie watching a film watching standpoint and that one i think has one of the better conceits and just kind of premises that i've ever seen and i you know i think there's so many things about hitchcock and the way that he directed that just like stand out where you can tell this is his film and that is absolutely one of them and one of my absolute favorites thank you for that because i'm a big hitchcock fan i have never even heard of that movie huh um, but i'm definitely gonna yeah, check it out now I yeah. love Jimmy Stewart and the premise, like you said, like I'm there. Um, Check it out. I think you'll I think you'll really like it. I definitely will. Chris Aaron, anything to pitch or let the audience know to look out for before you say your goodbye? No, not really. I um nothing 
big on the horizon. Like I'm working on some stuff, but I think we're, you know, we're coming up on the all-star break. So there's stuff. I'll probably write another next piece soon ish. I uh, did one a couple weeks ago on OG mm-hmm. and Obi and kind of how he's really kickstarted the Knicks offense more. So mm-hmm. not more so, but like about as much as he did the defense yep. for different reasons. Um, and in between that and working on stories, like I'm just trying to crank out a second book, which is oh nice. painstaking and, and heavy lifting and not enough hours in the day sort of thing, particularly as you're trying to, I mentioned my fiance and just trying to get used to home life with her and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so all that, but I will, I will get there at some point of, um, you know, it's, it's a heavy lift to do and, uh, trying to remind myself that I felt the same way about the Knicks book, but then, you know, at the end of it, it was all mm. kind of yeah. worth it eventually. So it's tough to yeah. go up that mountain once you've come down again, man. Oh man. I mean, it it'd be nice to, stay up there but uh but you can't do the work without that being the case uh and also the altitude would probably get to you at a certain point so it's, it's good to come down and breathe a little bit first but it's man maybe i didn't take a long enough break before jumping into the second one i have a friend in mirin fader who yeah has already finished i mean she just recently we were texting yesterday she recently finished her second book and is kind of in the final phases of that and i'm and is already talking you know at least to me about like wanting to take on a third one, I'm like you're better than me because how like it's just like and we basically started our first book like kind of around the same time saw mm-hmm. them come out in a similar time span but she like I needed downtime for the second one and still am not there with it and Miran is done with hers and already thinking about three I'm like wow I don't know how anybody does it particularly as well as she does it she's um, great she's incredible she's just incredible and I, I think the world of her mm-hmm well, different strokes, man, but Chris Herring, we will look out for your work at ESPN, and also whenever the next book starts to take shape, we'd be happy to have you on and talk about that as well. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and good luck with everything that you have coming up, man. I appreciate you, Matthew. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Take care, man.